The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church 13, David Platt looks at the believer's ultimate hope of heaven, as well as the sobering realities of death, judgment, and hell. What happens after we die? When will Christ return? What kind of body will we have at the resurrection? Is hell a literal reality? What will heaven be like? What is the millennium? These kinds of questions are addressed, but not simply for the purpose of satisfying our curiosity. The goal is to persevere in hope and to realize the urgency and gravity of the mission that God has given to His church. For the Secret Church 13 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit radical.net slash SC13. This is Secret Church 13, Episode 1. So I want to jump right into the weightiness of this topic before. So if you'll pull out that study guide that hopefully you received wherever you are, whether in a church gathering or in a home. For those of you who are new to Secret Church, I hope you have chosen wisely and the person you are sitting next to right now because you're going to need them. If, if they are a frequent dozer or if they're not good listeners, note takers, you're going to be at a significant disadvantage. So look around the room in your house, church building, whatever. If it's not too late, you may want to make a switch. No offense. But the purpose of this study guide you've got in your hand is multifaceted. And one of these purposes is to enable us to cover as much biblical material as possible in one sitting. So when I've gathered together with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world at the risk of their lives, our lives, they, we make the most of that time. So our goal tonight is to make the most of this time. So we're going to drink from the fire hydrant of God's Word. And we'll have time to digest later. But in the process of making the most of our time, we want to equip one another with as much of God's Word as we can for life in this world. I want to remind you from the very beginning, whether this is your first secret church or you've been involved in every single one of them, that our goal tonight is not entertainment. The goal is equipping, and this is key. The goal is not just for even 60,000 people to have a good Bible study tonight. If that's our goal, then we missed the point from the start. The goal tonight is for 60,000 people to consider the eternal weight of heaven, hell, the end of the world, and, and to leave this place in places where you're gathered all over the world, equipped with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to proclaim the gospel of God, the good news that men, women, and children can be saved from everlasting suffering to experience eternal life. So that's, that's the point. Now that we're here, we walk out of here proclaiming. So that leads us right into the beginning of the notes. So you open up the side, where, open up the study guide, where we need to begin. We need to pause at the outset of our time tonight and realize that in this world, we are continually blinded by the temporal and we are subtly numbed by the trivial. We have busy lives. Many of us have come to this gathering from busy work days and busy weeks. And so much of our Busyness revolves around the temporal and the trivial. We, we busy ourselves climbing corporate ladders, 
We amuse ourselves through hours of social media and internet surfing and TV and movie watching and game playing. We spend ourselves on new possessions and new pleasures. We work out our bodies excessively. We worship our sports incessantly. We run our children all across town, teaching them to value things that will not last. And in the middle of it all, we desperately need to contemplate the eternal. So many things that we focus our lives on today will not matter 10 years from now, much less 10 billion years from now. And this is where Scripture draws our attention, particularly tonight, to what will matter 10 billion years from now. A.W. Tozer said, let no one apologize for the powerful emphasis Christianity lays upon the doctrine of the world to come. Right there lies its immense superiority to everything else within the whole sphere of human thought or experience. When Christ arose from death and ascended into heaven, he established forever three important facts, namely that this world has been condemned to ultimate dissolution, that the human spirit persists beyond the grave, and that there is indeed a world to come. The church is constantly being tempted to accept this world as her home, and sometimes she has listened to the blandishments of those who would woo her away and use her for their own ends. But if she is wise, she will consider that she stands in the valley between the mountain peaks of eternity past and eternity to come. The past is gone forever, and the present is passing as swift as the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz. Even if the earth should continue a million years, not one of us could stay to enjoy it. We would do well to think of the long, think of the long tomorrow. So tonight we're going to pause and we're going to think about the long tomorrow. Now, as we pause, we need to listen with humility. So the kinds of things we're contemplating tonight, we cannot afford to be wrong on. We don't want to live in a world of conjecture when it comes to eternal realities, especially when we know what is certain. And that's why that study God is filled with God's word. Because God's word is the only foundation upon which we can stand when we think about these things. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What transcends this world? God's word. So, tonight, let's minimize the thoughts of man and magnify the truth of God. Now, I've got quotes from different people, like Tozer just a second ago, scattered throughout these notes. But the purpose of all these quotes from men and women is purely to point us to the truth of God, to the Word of God. And this is important. There are so many thoughts of man swirling around, not just our culture, but swirling around the church today about heaven, hell, and the end of the world. Do you know what the best-selling evangelical book of the past decade is? Heaven is for real. A fanciful account of a four-year-old boy who talks about how he went to heaven and got a halo and wings but he didn't like them because they were too small. He claims that he sat on Jesus' lap while angels sang to him. He even met the Holy Spirit, whom he describes as kind of blue. Over seven million copies sold. Not to be confused with another book entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, another bestseller by a man named Kevin Malarkey. Pun intended. <laughs> I'm just saying... But Malarkey, <laughs> Malarkey had a six-year-old son who allegedly made multiple trips to heaven and back after a car accident. Malarkey's son, Alex, has personally seen Satan many times. He describes him as having a funny-looking mouth, a few moldy teeth, no noticeable ears, two bony arms, and two bony legs. 
Now, these two books are not to be confused with My Journey to Heaven, What I Saw and How It Changed My Life by Marvin Bestman, Flight to Heaven by Dale Black, To Heaven and Back, A True Story by Mary Neal, 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don, not John Piper, Nine Days in Heaven by Dennis Prince, 23 Minutes in Hell by Bill Weiss, none of which, none of which you will see in the recommended reading at the end of your study guide. So make no mistake, there is money to be made in peddling fiction about the afterlife as nonfiction in the world of Christian publishing today. And, and what's, that's what's so disturbing about the entire trend. These books are being published and then devoured by people who would describe themselves as born-again Bible-believing Christians. And all of that shows our level of discernment in the church today on this topic is extremely low. Because the whole premise behind every single one of these books is contrary to everything God's Word says about heaven. John MacArthur sums it up best. I don't have this quote in your guide, but he points to these two verses. I've got Proverbs 34 and John 3.13 when he says, For anyone who truly believes the biblical record, it is impossible to resist the conclusion that these modern testimonies, with their relentless self-focus and the relatively scant attention they pay to the glory of God, are simply untrue. They're either figments of the human imagination, dreams, hallucinations, false memories, fantasies, and in the worst cases, deliberate lies, or else they're products of demonic deception. He continues, we know this with absolute certainty because Scripture definitively says that people do not go to heaven and come back. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Proverbs 34. Answer, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. John 3.13. All the accounts of heaven in Scripture are visions, not journeys taken by dead people. And even visions of heaven are very, very rare in Scripture. You can count them all on one hand. Four biblical authors had visions about heaven and wrote about what they saw. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John. All of them were prophetic vision, not near-death experiences. Not one person raised from the dead in the Old Testament or the New Testament ever wrote down what he or she experienced in heaven, including Lazarus, who had a lot of time in a grave for four days. I was reading the other day, 2 Corinthians 12 describes being, Paul being, he describes being caught up into heaven, but he gave no details. He summed it up in three verses. One author said, all the biblical writers who saw heaven and described their visions give comparatively sparse details, but they agree perfectly. Their visions are all fixated on the glory of God, which defines heaven and illuminates everything there. They are overwhelmed, chagrined, petrified, and put to silence by the sheer majesty of God's holiness. Notably missing from all the biblical accounts are the frivolous features and juvenile attractions that seem to dominate every account of heaven currently on the bestseller list. Why then, why are we buying the stuff when we have the Word of God? Let's minimize the thoughts of man, magnify, trust. Let's bank our lives and our understanding of the future on the truth of God. At the same time, let's lay aside our traditions and submit to God's Word. So none of us wants to believe things about heaven, hell, and the end of the world just because we grew up hearing certain things taught. There's too much at stake in our lives and others' lives for that. So for the sake of our tradition, Matthew 15, 6, we don't want to make void the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that simply in reading God's Word, we're going to come to entire agreement on every single detail about heaven, hell, the end of the world. The reality is many Bible-believing Christians have different understandings of different passages in Scripture. So then, there in your notes, I put, let's leave room for disagreement among us tonight. Even tonight here, let's leave room for disagreement over secondary and tertiary doctrines while celebrating agreement over primary doctrines. 
Now here's what I mean by that. Ephesians 4 calls us to the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we long for unity around Christ our Lord, under God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which means that we need to do some theological triage in our lives, in our churches, and in the greater church around the world. Here's what I mean by that. Follow with me here. Christians obviously, well, I hope this is obvious, Christians obviously divide from non-Christians over primary doctrines, and Christians are willing to die for these doctrines. So primary doctrines like the humanity and deity of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Christ on a cross for our sins, his resurrection from the grave, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are the kinds of doctrines that if you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. The kind of doctrines that you die for Deny Christ or be imprisoned? You say prison. Deny Christ or die? You say die. Then there's other doctrines that are important in Scripture but not primary. And churches distinguish themselves from one another over secondary doctrines. Yet they partner together around primary doctrines. So think, for example, here about, about baptism. All right, Baptist churches believe in the baptism of a believer by immersion. Right? Presbyterian churches believe in the baptism of infants by sprinkling. Are both Christians? Absolutely. Though I believe in a Christian's baptism by immersion, I love, respect, and honor Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Some, some of the churches who have gathered together tonight have different views on baptism. And I honor those churches and those, their members and their pastors. I, I just think they're wrong <laughs> on baptism. And they think I'm wrong. And that's okay. So we can partner together in the spread of the gospel in our cities and among the nations. Are we going to be in the same church? Probably not. I have biblical convictions that they would, that would keep me from baptizing an infant. They have what they call biblical convictions that, <laughs> that lead them to baptize infants. And it's, it's good that we don't compromise on our convictions. But at the same time, we realize that this doesn't divide us as Christians. But then there's third tier, tertiary doctrines. And Christians in the same church disagree with one another over tertiary doctrines, but it does not in any way decrease the intimacy of their fellowship with one another. So follow with me. This is where I want us to be really, really careful tonight. We're going to talk about some things that are of primary importance. I'd include the nature of salvation here, the reality of heaven and hell. But we're also going to talk about some things that are all the way down here in the third level of importance. Views on the book of Revelation. Interpretations of the millennium. As we wade into those issues, I want us to be careful not to divide over them and to not let them in any way decrease our intimacy and fellowship amidst local churches. So my goal tonight on issues like that is to present different sides as faithfully as I can. And then at all points, at some points, I may say, well, here's where I come down on this. But even as I do, I know that some of you have studied Revelation. You have convictions about how to interpret this or that, how to understand the millennium that will be different than where I would come down. And what I want to say clearly from the start is that this should never be a cause for breaking fellowship within the body of Christ. Never. I preached through Revelation last year at Brook Hills here, and there were brothers and sisters who were disagreeing with me every week. But together we were joyfully studying the Word, united around what was clear, and agreeing to disagree on some things that are not as clear. So here's our guiding principle tonight. In essentials, unity, and in non-essentials, liberty. Let's be free to disagree on these third-order doctrines while we stake our lives together around the world on first-order doctrines. And when I say stake our lives together, that's, well, that's exactly what I need, mean. Tonight we need to pause, we need to listen with humility to God's Word, and in the end we need to live with urgency in this world. So... From the very beginning, I want to ask the question, like, 
do we really believe this book? Because if we do, as we'll see tonight, the ramifications are astounding for the world that we live in. This book is true. If Jesus is the only way to be saved from sin and restored, reconciled to God, there's seven billion people in the world. Most liberal estimate puts the world at about one-third Christian, and that's people who claim to be Christian. In many cases, that's more of a social or political even identification. Most are not actually all followers of Christ, but even if we assumed they were, that still leaves 4.7 billion people who at this moment are on a road that leads to an eternal hell if nothing changes. And about a billion and a half of those have never even heard the gospel that we're going to talk about tonight. Billions of people on a road that leads to hell. If this book is true, then we do not have time to waste our lives and our churches on a nice, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream. It doesn't make sense for people who believe what we're talking about tonight to believe this casually and just go on and life is normal and live like everybody else in the culture around us makes no sense. For those who believe this book, we have a master who demands radical sacrifice and a mission that warrants radical urgency. So we need to live with urgency. Jonathan Edwards wrote that he was resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell torments. Oh God, give us this perspective. Brothers and sisters, we stand on the porch of eternity. Even the youngest among us tonight has 80, 90 years left in the world. 80 or 90 years will be followed by thousands upon thousands upon millions upon millions upon billions upon trillions of years. Will we look back 10 trillion years from now, knowing what we know then, will we look back and wish we'd We'd had more status. We wish we'd been more comfortable. Well, we wish we'd lived more for ourselves. No, not at all. So let's live with urgency, with a height of confidence that has no fear in the face of the future. A confidence that says, yes, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's live with a breadth of compassion that compels us to lay down our lives for the lost. Here in Romans 9, 1-3, Paul says that if he could, if he could, he'd give up his salvation and go to hell for the sake of the lost. Specifically here, it's the people of Israel who are not trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. He says, I would stand on the brink of damnation and throw myself in if it would mean that they would experience eternal life. So God, give us that kind of compassion. And remember who this compassion is for here. This is Jewish people who were persecuting Paul. They'd beaten him. They'd imprisoned him. They'd stoned him and left him for dead. And he's saying this about them. So I ask you tonight, brother or sister, would you go to hell for the sake of militant Muslims in the Middle East? May we live with a breadth of compassion that compels us to lay down our lives for the lost. And may we live with a depth of courage that defies death in this world. So we're going to talk later about how this is the point of the book of Revelation, to encourage Christians to give, even lose their lives in the world for the spread of the gospel, Revelation chapter 2. So may it be said, this is my prayer, may it be said of 60,000 people who gather together on Good Friday to contemplate heaven, hell, and the end of the world, May it be said of us that loyalty to God is more important to us than life itself. 
Revelation 12, they love not their lives even unto death. May that be our testimony. So see it. The world's highest goal is to preserve physical life. But that is not the highest goal of your life, Christian. Our highest goal is to obey God, even if that means losing our physical lives. Hear the testimony of Old Testament saints who died in faith, not having received the things promised, Hebrews 11, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiled on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking that that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Old Testament saints. Hear the testimony of New Testament apostles. We must obey God rather than men. They rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They knew, Acts 14, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in in every city the Holy Spirit leads me. I know that prison and hardships are facing me, but I count my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of his grace. He knew that persecution was coming. Then hear the testimony of martyrs throughout history. The disciples and authors of the Gospels. Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword at a distant city of Ethiopia. Mark expired at Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Luke was hanged upon an olive tree in the classic land of Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil but escaped death in a miraculous manner and was afterward banished to Patmos. Peter was crucified with his, at Rome with his head downward. And James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then beat to death with a fuller's club. Bartholomew flayed alive. Andrew bound to a cross when he preached to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through the body with a lance in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas of the Gentiles was stoned to death at Salonika. Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, was at length beheaded at Rome by the emperor Nero. Justin Martyr said, no one makes us afraid or leads us into captivity as we have set our faith on Jesus. For though we are beheaded and crucified and exposed to beasts and chains and fire and all other forms of torture, torture, it is plain that we do not forsake the confession of our faith. But the more things of this kind ha- which happen to us, the more there are others who become believers through the name of Jesus. That's why Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the words of Spurgeon, never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. Robert Murray McShane summed it up. We do not know the value of Christ if we will not cleave to him unto death. And this is what Jesus called us to. He told us that to follow him would be costly. So he says, Matthew 10, have no fear of them. See with an eternal perspective. Christ is your life. Set your mind on things above. That's what we're doing tonight. Then we speak with a holy boldness. This word witnesses in Acts 1.8 is literally, the word in the language of the New Testament is martyreo. It's the word from which we get the word martyr. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be a witness, martyreo, to the ends of the earth. So don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Speak with a holy boldness and sacrifice with reckless abandonment. Lose your life, Jesus says, and find it. In view of Christ in heaven and hell, may loyalty to God be more important to us than life itself. 
And may mission in this world be more important to us than maintenance in our churches. We must make sacrifices in our churches and our programs and our priorities. We cannot do business as usual in the church while people around us and people among the nations are plunging into hell. His commission is clear, Matthew 28. His commission is costly, Matthew 24. So hear these words from John Piper, words that I pray will become a reality in your heart tonight. When you know the truth about what happens to you after you die, and you believe it, and you're satisfied with all that God will be for you in the ages to come, that truth makes you free indeed, free from the short, shallow, suicidal pleasures of sin, and free for the sacrifices of mission and ministry that cause people to give glory to our Father in heaven. So, to all who came tonight thinking, this is going to be great. We're going to have all kinds of charts and tables that tell us about when Jesus is going to come back. I want to be clear from the start. That is not the point. Put away the charts and lay down your life. That's the point. The point's not to give you charts tonight. The point is to give you truth that will compel you to lay your life and your family and your possessions and your retirement and your dreams and your ambitions and your church down to make this eternal gospel known all around you and to the ends of the earth no matter what it costs you. And so we need to pray. We need to pray because our lives are at stake for eternity based on truth we're looking at tonight. I am certain that amidst 60,000 people, some, likely many, who are even listening right now are currently on a road that leads to hell. And so I'm praying that the eternal destinies of many people might change tonight because of the truth and the power of God and the love of God in His Word. We need to pray because our lives are at stake for eternity. We need to pray because others' lives are at stake forever. There is coming a day when the words of Revelation 2015, anyone's name that was not found written in the book of life will be thrown in the lake of fire. Is there any more, anything more important for us to dive into than this tonight? So, so I want to pause and I, I want to pray specifically along these lines. So will you, will you pray with me? God in heaven, we pray tonight for clarity from your word. We want to hear your truth, oh God. Minimize my thoughts and magnify your truth. To the end that every single one of the 60,000 people who are part of this tonight, to the end that every one of us would see our true spiritual condition before you, God, open our eyes, help us to listen with humility. And we pray that if we are on a road that leads to an eternal hell, you would make that clear to us. And you would save some, save many from their sins tonight. Here and in China among Muslims there. And, and then for all who know the security of eternal life with you. Uh, and God, we pray that that security would only increase tonight with joy and deeper hope as we look at heaven. We pray that you would send us out from where we're sitting at this moment to spread this gospel where we live into the ends of the earth. God, we pray that tonight would have ripple effects in the world in the days and months and years to come through a people who believe you and who love you more than life itself and through lives, and through churches that are awakened from spiritual stupor on this Good Friday, to see the glory of Christ with fresh eyes, and to 
feel the urgency of eternity in a fresh way. Ultimately, we might believe your word and that we might, oh God, live with death-defying boldness in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.